Okay, so we'll start with the introduction to the story. Naomi, we're going to do a little bit of back backpedaling here to just review. Naomi's received word in the fields of Moab that God has visited his people. Finally, she realizes it's time for her to return to the land of God. She's heading back to Bethlehem. She's returning in a different state than she left. When she left Bethlehem, she was <coughs> married and had two sons. She now returns as a childless widow. The famine in Bethlehem's come to an end. This is not just a ram random detail. It's not just a, a happening. This is a sign that God's blessing has been restored to the land. Remember, the covenant curses were famine. And the curses came about because of punishment, because of the people's sin. So the fact that now there is food at the house of bread in Bethlehem, uh, it shows that God's favor has been returned to the people. Naomi and, and Elimelech originally left. They were an honored couple, as is symbolized by their names. But she comes back bearing a different status. It's a status of shame. It's disgrace and shame as she's alone and childless. She's now impoverished. She faces the possibility of becoming dependent on society. The lineage of her husband has probably most likely been concluded. She can't imagine having another son at this age. She has no line to pass on for her husband. She lacks someone to provide for her. She's a fear, she has a fear of becoming a burden to society. She was once known for her pleasantness and beauty. She was called lovely. Now she's bitter. She's convinced that God's hand has turned against her. And that's where we see the beginning of our story for today. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 14. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So what we're seeing in this first exchange, this is like the time of dialogue. It's the most Naomi's ever said, because so far this is her first time to talk. She sets out to return home, and as they're on their way, she seems to realize that she should not have her daughter-in-laws with her. And so she gives them the command to return. This was not something she had considered when they were first setting out. But now as they're on the way, she commands her daughter-in-laws to return. We don't know what influences Naomi's decision, but as you look at her words, you can see she has a motive, and that is to get them to leave her. She does not want them with her. There's two possible reasons why this might be, and there's speculation on my part. First, practically. She's a widow. She's childless. She's impoverished. Feeding one mouth alone is an obstacle that she's going to have to face, let alone adding two more mouths to feed. 
And secondly, there's the social aspect of it. Bringing these two Moabite women with her to Israel could lead to judgment from the other people in Bethlehem. How will they accept these Moabite women? They're foreigners. And so that also could be something that Naomi was taking into account. So she turns to them and she says, it's time to return to your families. This chapter life's over. My sons are gone. It's time for all of us to move forward. Then she offers a heartfelt blessing for them. She says, may Yahweh treat you kindly, just as you've shown kindness to the deceased, your husbands, and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the homes of your future husbands. As the women had shown Hesed love and loyalty to Naomi, Naomi is now asking Yahweh to bless them with Yesed, with Hesed. Hesed's a covenant term, and there's really not a good English word to describe the meaning. It wraps up all the meanings of the positive attributes of God. It talks about love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. Those are all facets of Hesed. And we don't have a word that encapsulates that. But basically, it's acts of devotion and loving kindness that goes over and beyond what would be required in normal duty. And her daughter-in-laws have given this to her. And so she asks that Yahweh would show that same kindness to them. Naomi's desire for them is to find rest. And by the word rest there, it's security. Because again, these women also are widowed. And they are childless. And that's a hard state to be in in this time. Being a widow led to isolation, poverty. So Naomi's encouraging them to go home, find husbands, seek a new life. By granting this, Naomi's saying, you can remarry. I release you from me and your responsibility to me. Go home, find a husband, and hopefully you'll find rest or security that you need. Ruth and Orpah, though, they're steadfast. They love Naomi. Naomi has fostered an amazing love in her daughter-in-laws and a loyalty in them to her. They say, no, we want to go with you to your land. And so Naomi's not swayed. She still doesn't want them with her. And so she uses a different tactic. She has three arguments that she comes up with to sway her daughter-in-laws from coming with her. The first argument is the logical one. It's kind of hopeless for um, you to be with me. If you want the hope of a better future, you need to go home. The probability of having more sons is remote, and she does not offer to try to look for them, husbands. The second argument she lays out is more forceful. It takes, has a little bit more meat to it. She tries, them to, to, tries to get them to see why it's ridiculous, honestly, for them to come with her. So she proposes this improbable hypothetical scenario. What are the odds that even if possible she got married today and got pregnant today with, it would have to be almost twins, or if it was two sons over a longer period of time, would these women wait until these babies grew up to marry them? And the flip side, would the men be willing to marry these now elderly women? Probably not. So it's an improbable situation. Then she throws on the third argument, and the third argument is irrefutable. She is that to stick with her is doom to doom oneself to her fate. In Naomi's eyes, the hand of the God of Israel, Yahweh, has gone out against her. Naomi's built an airtight case to not, for them not to be connected to her. 
between her statement, the Lord's hand's gone out against me and I'm much too bitter for you. Her heart is exposed to her daughter-in-law's. What Naomi believes is very clear. She believes that the earlier famine in Bethlehem, her family's sojourn in Moab, the deaths of her husband and sons, the barrenness of her daughter-in-laws, they were married for 10 years and they didn't have any children. Naomi believes all of these things were caused by the hand of God. God caused her hardships. His hand has gone out against her and she feels that she's the target for his power and wrath. To be connected to somebody who has God in his sights would be a foolish thing to do. They would not want to be associated with her. No one in their right mind would want that. She needs to be shunned. So this last argument brings to the forefront the faith of Naomi. What is speaking in her heart? Is it just sorrow? Or are there more troubling aspects to consider? Naomi, who just sweetly commended her daughter-in-laws to the care of Yahweh, now spews charges against Yahweh for the bitterness in her life. Instead of recognizing the possibility that there was sin that brought about these events, what caused the famine in the first place? The sin of the nation. Instead of recognizing that sin could be a factor in some of this, she blames God for the whole thing. She sets her despair and her bitterness squarely at God's feet and accuses him of acting unjustly toward her. This shows that she has a really flawed understanding of God's actions, of why he does what he does. It reveals that the strong faith that you felt like she might have held when she was blessing her daughter-in-laws is not strong at all. It's actually very flawed and very weak. The deep bitterness welling up in her heart against Yahweh is exposed. And after this, the only sensible course, course of action for Orpah and Ruth would be to leave. And that's exactly what Orpah does. She kisses Naomi goodbye, makes the difficult decision to leave, and she exits the family and exits the story. We don't know what else happens to Orpah. And once again, the narrator gives us no condemnation for Orpah leaving. Orpah's actually being respectful to Naomi. She's obeying what Naomi has so firmly over and over told her to do. She's obeying and respecting Orpah. Orpah. But what we realize from the story is that Orpah has a role. Her role is to be the foil to Ruth. It's not so much that Ruth is right and Orpah is wrong, but her role is to show off the character of Ruth. Because in light of Orpah and the natural thing to leave, Ruth's staying shines more brightly. Initially, the sister-in-laws are very alike. They're both Moab wives of brothers. They're childless widows. They were both, they both displayed unwavering loyalty and love to Naomi, Orpah as much as Ruth. There was nothing staining her reputation or distinguishing her from Ruth until now. And now you see the paths go different ways. Orpah leaves, Ruth stays. Ruth firmly clings to Naomi. The word cling is very significant. It has a heavy weight to it. It implies a firm loyalty and a deep affection. It's almost a covenantal connection and commitment. So we see Ruth clinging to Naomi. It's not just a physical embrace. There's a commitment behind this embrace. She's essentially saying, I will not let you go. 
And so in verse 15, you see the next interchange. Naomi says, Behold, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi draws Ruth's attention to Orpah. Look at Orpah. There she goes. Ruth, catch her so you're not by yourself. Ruth, go. <laughs> She's return, go. Not just go, da, 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 return, but return, go. How else can I say it? Naomi does not want Ruth there. Now, what I find really interesting, and this is um, semi-speculation, but it's also looking at her words, and I think we can extrapolate things from Naomi's words that tell us about Naomi's heart and about her faith. Um, so I'll try to distinguish when I think I'm speculating, but when I also think there's some concrete evidence of this. So here, as you look at Naomi's remarks, I think they offer us some concrete evidence about the faith of Naomi. Naomi is content that Orpah goes back to her gods, her false gods. The god of Chemosh is the god that the Moabites worship. They worship several gods, but Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, was the god that was their deity over all. And Chemosh was prosperity, protection, fertility. That's the god they prayed to. They also, Chemosh, wanted child sacrifices. So there's an illustration in Kings 327, 2 Kings 327, where there's a Moabite king that offers his son to Chemosh for victory over Israel, and he doesn't get the victory because Chemosh is dead. He's a stone. But this God is powerful, and Naomi is content to send Orpah back to her gods. And that's interesting because Naomi knows Yahweh. She has to have known the accounts of Yahweh's actions in Israel and how he brought them out of Egypt, how he protected them in the wilderness, how he brought them into the land. But don't forget that right now we're reading a story that is coming out of the midst of the time of the judges when Israel is in sin. Their hearts are far from understanding and knowing the God of the covenant. So Naomi is representing, I think, the hearts of who those people were in Judges. Her faith represents the faith that is most common in the book of Judges. She doesn't understand God. She's comfortable sending Orpah back to worship Chemosh. She almost, in her belief, it's almost as if she can say, we can pick our different gods. I have Yahweh, go home to your gods. She doesn't understand who God is and the importance of worshiping God. But again, there's no comment from the narrator about this. So I'm speculating on what Naomi believes, but I think I can say that Naomi's faith is immature and lacking. We can deduce that Naomi seems to have adopted that immature faith during the time of the judges. Now, it's easy when, in the past, when I've read this book, it's been easy to idolize Naomi, almost to where I get a little protective of her. I listened to a sermon one time, and one of the pastors said something about Naomi was a whiner, and I was like, ah, she wasn't a whiner, look what she went through. You know, <laughs> I came to her defense, and now I'm going to go pow, pow, pow. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> But it was easy to read it through romantic eyes. 
that simply saw her struggles. But now as we're going verse by verse, we see more into her heart. And it's not to condemn her because, again, the passage has no condemnation here. But I think rather it's to look at it and think, what do I see of my heart in Naomi? Because I think if we're honest, we all could see shades of ourselves in Naomi. When hardship comes, how do we respond? So in spite of Naomi's attempt at persuasion, Ruth stays resolved. She's resolute. In verses 16 and 17, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth's response is beautiful. It is poetic. We use it in marriages now. We quote this when we want to show loyalty. And I won't go there, but it's okay. It's a beautiful commitment vow. It's beautiful. But what the purposes are here in the book of Ruth is to show what she is telling Naomi. All the power and logic of Naomi's argument has been ineffective. Ruth's faith is in Yahweh. It's not in Naomi. But her commitment is to Naomi. She's got faith in Yahweh and she commits herself to Naomi. She's resolute in her stance. She simply cannot return to her formal life. So she's cut off ties with her family. She's cut off ties with her gods. She's formed an alliance now with Yahweh. And on that foundation, she clings to Naomi. It's intriguing to look at what she says. When she says, where you go, I will go. She's prepared to follow Naomi's physical path and never leave her side. Where you stay, I will stay. Ruth commits to staying with Naomi in her new home and not turning back. This is not, I'll stay for a while, then we'll see how we're doing. This is, I will stay. There's a permanency to this. Your people shall be my people. She's fully integrating herself into Naomi's community. She's adopting the Jewish people and their way of life. Your God, my God. Ruth goes the furthest step saying she's embracing Naomi's faith and Yahweh as her own God. She has completely turned her back on the past. And she is now embracing her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then in verse 17, the culmination of her declaration is her statement, where you die, I will die, and where you're buried, I'll be buried. This is a huge statement of unwavering loyalty and love. She's committing not only to remain with Naomi in life, but also in death. She vows to support and accompany Naomi through all the circumstances, even to death. And that's symbolic because when death happens, there's a family plot. You're buried with your family. You're buried with your fathers. And Ruth is saying, I want to be buried with your fathers, with your ancestry, with your heritage. She's expressing her intention to be buried alongside Naomi. They have one purpose and one identity. She is wholeheartedly with Naomi. So serious is this vow that Ruth makes that she calls upon Yahweh to strike her down if she ever breaks this commitment. That is so serious. And what's so amazing is that Ruth understands what she's saying. 
she knows the commitment she made, just made. So Orpah, or not Orpah, Naomi has taught her, has shown her Yahweh. She's shown her the sovereignty of Yahweh. What Naomi has not shown, at least at this point, is God's goodness. But Ruth seems to know God's goodness. She's unwaveringly put herself underneath the umbrella of God to say, if I ever depart from the commitment I just made to Naomi, may God strike me down. This is a beautiful, moving, powerful speech that's a testimony of Ruth's transformation. Now, commentaries went different ways as far as whether they would say Ruth actually was converted. Um, it's not said in the text. It doesn't say she's converted. But I think what it does tell us is that she has chosen to have faith in God. And God has always honored those that have faith in him. And so that's how I'll phrase what Ruth has done. She's rejected the God she was raised with, and she's wholeheartedly placed her allegiance in Yahweh. What's interesting is Naomi's response to this speech. She says, Ruth, thank you so much for being willing to come alongside me. No. She says, Ruth, what a sacrifice. You're leaving your home. I now have something. Nope. All she says, she doesn't utter a word. It says in verse 18, when Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more. As far as we know, that's the last thing Naomi said on their trek. She said no more. Naomi doesn't utter a word. She turns away and departs. She seems completely deaf to what Ruth said. She's not phased at all by Ruth's beautiful words, pledging her love and loyalty to Naomi and to Yahweh. She shows no care for Ruth. And as far as we see in Scripture, she's silent. She has nothing more to say or to offer Ruth. Instead, we know she's consumed by her grief. Her heart is engulfed in bitterness. She can't see past herself to realize the change in Ruth. Naomi was content to have Ruth leave and go back to the God of the Moabites, to go back to the enslavement of that God. Naomi was fine with that. She would have wished that. All she's doing now is saying, oh, well, I guess she's not going to listen to me. Let's go. That's her only response. But also never forget that Ruth is not a stranger to suffering either. She's lost her children. She was barren for 10 years. She never had a child. And by committing to remain with Naomi, she's cutting her ties from all of her life in the past from her family. Um, she's not a stranger to suffering. And yet she's willing to do all of this. While Naomi prospects in Israel are challenging, because Naomi is going back as a widow, she's childless and she's a woman, Ruth's is even more daunting because she's going back as a Moabite foreigner who is a childless and is a widow. So just when you think Naomi's behaviors hit rock bottom, once they arrive in Bethlehem, we see a whole different nature to Naomi come out. So in verses 19 through 21, uh, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. The women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she causes quite a stir. And you can imagine, she's been gone for probably a decade or more. And the women, they remember her, but she's different. So there's quite a stir. And the word stir is excitement, murmuring. Um, it can be negative, it can be positive. We don't know what they were saying, but we can imagine that the whole town is abuzz with Naomi's return. And in verses 20, 20b and 21, we see the enormity of Naomi's bitterness. Yahweh has brought this affliction on her. He's the source of her adversity and hardship. Yahweh bears the responsibility for her adversities. She's at odds with, Naomi, with um, Yahweh. She left full by her own means, but she's returned empty by God's hand. So you see her faith, her heart right now. He brought the affliction. He's to blame for the challenges in her life. She's in a full state of, of despair, and she's fully immersed in her desolation and her bitterness. Naomi, who had left in sweetness and pleasantness, is now anything but. She tells them, don't call me Naomi any longer. Call me Mara being bitter, because she's been transformed from a pleasant woman to a bitter woman. What about Ruth? How do they greet Ruth? Well, they basically ignore her. She's as if she's not even there. They focus solely on Naomi. Is this Naomi? Ruth's present goes on knowledge. Naomi laments, I departed with plenty, but God has brought me back empty. Nothing. So what does this tell you about her feelings toward Ruth? What did Ruth just do to her? He, she just said, I have poured my life into you. I am committed to you. You are not alone anymore because I am here with you. And Naomi comes into town and says, I have nothing. I'm empty. Call me bitter. Skudaskai, Ruth. She, <laughs> she is bitter. Her perspective is all on herself. She doesn't see what Ruth offered her. Through the wording that she uses, and I've seen this in several of the different commentaries I looked at, I think we can safely say that Naomi paints a picture of God as a figure in a courtroom. He's acting as the prosecuting attorney who's speaking to her or about her. She sees God as testifying against her. He's recounting her sins and her wrongdoings. He's recounting her evil deeds. He's ultimately demanding that she be punished accordingly. Naomi's firmly convinced that God is actively working against her, bringing harm to her. This is Naomi's significant error in her thinking. She's measuring God's love solely by her own evaluation of her circumstances and her happiness. Remember when she went out, she was full. She was happy. She was content. Now she comes back empty. She's measuring God's love for her by her status. She's looking back on her life and she sees the past as a time of blessing. But that's actually not true. Because why did they leave Israel in the first place? Because they were in famine. They were under God's punishment. So it wasn't true that God's blessing was on her when she left. She was leaving during a time of sin. But she seems to have forgotten all of that. All she knows, because she's consumed in herself, is that she was happy then and she's not now. She was full then and now she's empty and God is to blame. 
her, her nostalgic recollections of better times are misplaced. She's become disconnected from reality and she's measuring God's love for her with a very flawed criteria, her own evaluation. Now, it's, it's important. I don't want to downplay the tragedy in Naomi's life. She has suffered some great hardship. She's been widowed. She's lost both of her sons. She's in a foreign land. She's without the resources that she could have had at home in Israel. But nowhere in this account is judgment ever made. She sees that God is judging her, but nowhere in this account do we ever see that God is judging her. She blames God for the judgment. But this account gives no judgment on Naomi. It doesn't tell us why Elimelech died. It doesn't tell us why her sons died. It doesn't tell us that it was wrong for them to go to Moab. It doesn't tell us any of these things. But Naomi tells us that she feels it very strong. She feels the judgment hand of God on her. She has accused God and she's measured his love in wrong ways. She's bitter. She doesn't believe she deserves these things. I think she probably sees herself as a pretty good person. When she left um, Israel, she was good. She didn't deserve what she was having to suffer. She doesn't acknowledge the sin of her people that brought the famine in the first place. She only has eyes to see her own goodness, but she can't see the goodness of God. She only sees her own. Yahweh is sovereign, but he's not good in her eyes. She sees his sovereignty. We see that over and over. She knows God is sovereign, but that's all she's focusing on. And guys, when you focus on the sovereignty of God, but you don't look at his goodness, because God is 100% sovereign. He knows all things, but he is also 100% good. Everything he does is good. We may not see it and understand it as good, but it is good. It is righteous. It is good. Naomi doesn't see that. She only sees God's sovereignty. And when you are left with a God that is sovereign, but not good, you're left with a God that is harsh, that is judgmental, that is vindictive, that is unpredictable. And look at how Naomi sees God. Don't you see those characteristics in her? God is vengeful. He's out after her. God is judgmental. He's condemned her. She does not see the goodness of God. She only sees his sovereignty. And this is where we see that belief has landed Naomi. She's measured God's love according to her standards, and she's found him lacking. On the other hand, we have Ruth, a young Moabite woman who's now a stranger in the foreign land. She's unwelcome among the people of Israel. But despite the challenges, she powerfully testifies of her love to God and her transformed heart. Although her husband died and left her with nothing, the people of Israel seem to be rejecting her. Ruth's heart is still desiring to follow God and to love him and to follow Naomi and to support her. She's willingly making a significant commitment and sacrifice to follow Naomi and to follow Yahweh. But she's doing it with a sweet heart that is content to be where God has placed her. Ruth displays a very sweet spirit and a genuine love for God. She expresses her obedience to the desires of Yahweh um, as she's facing immense difficulties. The author provides a concise summary in verse 20, 22, and I'll read that here in a second. It sets the stage for what's going to unfold in the rest of the story. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest, the barley harvest. 
So Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has now been restocked with bread. So Bethlehem is flourishing. It has bread. God is once again blessing his people. Naomi could have remembered that when the blessing came, it came from the hand of God because God had forgiven them. God, Naomi could have known that. The people knew that in Judges. You saw them in that cycle of disobedience. When they cried out to God, God would forgive them. They would know that. They knew about God's forgiveness. They knew about God's law. They knew about the curses and the punishments and the blessings that would come as they obeyed God's law. Naomi knew all those things, but her eyes weren't focused on them. God had blessed her. He had given her provision. He had brought her back to Bethlehem because of his provision. Her provision was food. Food was essential to the country. And that's what he gave her. He gave it to the people. It was a kindness of God. Every time they put something in their mouth, it was a sample of God's kindness and his blessing to them. He gave her Ruth and Ruth's stubborn commitment to her. What a blessing to have this daughter-in-law who comes along beside her and says, nothing will separate me from you. I am here with you. As loud and clearly as she could have, Ruth is saying, Naomi, you're not alone. I am with you till you die. And then I will be, die I will be buried with your ancestors. Ruth exemplifies Hesed love. She exemplifies that faithful, loyal, kind, gracious love to Naomi. But Naomi doesn't have the eyes to see it because she's too consumed in herself. God gave Naomi a welcome in Jerusalem. The women were excited to see her back. They remembered her. She had family and friends here. And yet, Naomi's attention is fixated on her heart and her bitterness against Yahweh. So you have two women of faith. One, Naomi, has faith that's battered. She knows God is sovereign behind her pain and sorrow, which it is. God's sovereign hand did bring that. We don't know why. Guys, we don't often know why hardship happens to us. God usually doesn't give us a clear answer because we trust him. So she has that. She has a faith that sees his sovereignty, but she can't see his goodness. And Ruth has faith that is new. She has no idea what's in store for her. She's put her life with a very embittered woman. She's connected her life with a very embittered woman. And she's trusting God to lead her each step of the way. As far as we know from Ruth, tomorrow she's going out to gather up barley. She's going to take care of Naomi. As we look closely at Naomi, though, I want to just spend a few minutes talking about what we can learn from Naomi. Again, I'm not here to beat up on Naomi. But Naomi's heart, if we're honest, I see shades of Naomi's heart in my own heart. When I go through harder times, I struggle. It doesn't even have to be hard times to cause me to struggle a little. A couple nights ago, um, we were driving home and we saw a deer that had been hit and it hadn't died. And I cry when I hit a squirrel. I cry when I hit a bird. And so to see that deer in the road and what happened, the car was fine, the people were fine. I just went home and I was like, God, why? I, it's almost like you can understand the big hardships of life easier than you can understand having to see the little hardships of life. Because that image just was playing over and over and over in my mind. It's like, why did I need to see that? Why? What good comes out of seeing that kind of pain and suffering? 
And I struggled with it for a little while, and then it just came to me. It's like, Michelle, because I then, of course, I go to the bigger question of why do we see what seems to be senseless hardship? We know God's hands in the bigger ones. Is he in the small ones, too? And it dawned on me, we see things like this so that we know that this life is not all there is. Sin and death reign now. The deer getting hit and suffering is part of sin, isn't it? It's part of the curse of sin. And we see that as a reminder to say, Lord, this, lo- this world's not my home. This is not where I need to be settled and content. In a lot of ways, we're in our Moab, but we were born here. This is where God's placed us. We're in a world that doesn't worship God. We need to long for heaven. We need to long for the day that Christ takes control, and that day will come. But I think we see hardships to turn our attention to him so that we long for him. We see that. So when we look at Naomi, we have to ask us how our hearts, how would we do? How would we do if we were faced with the situation Naomi was faced with? She was given great issues to struggle with. But seeing Naomi's heart, it it encourages me to evaluate my own heart and to pray for God's protection and empowerment. If I lost my husband and my children, how would I handle that? How would I walk with joy in my life? And, you know, you can almost then come to a fear of, well, I don't want that to happen to me, you know. But that's not what God calls either. What he calls is for us to be faithful to what he gives us today. To be faithful, putting his truths in our heart. Because knowing God is sovereign, but not understanding that he is good, will lead us straight to where Naomi ended up. And that is embittered. It's when you see God's sovereignty, but you also say, but God, you are good. I may not understand your goodness through this, but you are good. And I want you to show me where you are, your goodness is coming out. Naomi had many times she could have seen God's goodness, but she chose to not see it because she was so overwhelmed by her heart and her bitterness against God. We need to make sure we are looking for God's goodness. And honestly, what takes me back to God's goodness every day is the cross. Somebody once said that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we do that to keep our perspective right, to keep our eyes about ourselves right. Naomi felt like she was pretty good. She didn't deserve this. If you look at the cross, You realize that your sin, your guilt, nailed him on that cross. And there's no one who does not have guilt. There's no one who does not have sin. And that sin is what put him on the cross. And he died for your sin. And that's the whole reason why we see the goodness of God. There's no greater picture of God's goodness but that he loved us enough. He loved me enough to send his son to die on a cross to pour his wrath out on Christ so that I could have eternal life with him, so that my sins could be forgiven. And so as we look at Naomi, evaluate your heart and then ask yourself, where are my eyes? 
what am I fixed on? Am I fixed on the inconveniences, the hardships, the sorrows that are very real of my life? Have they engulfed my heart, though? Or are my eyes fixed on Christ and his goodness to me, how God loved me enough to send his son for me? That's where we see God testifying his love to us. He's not in a courtroom testifying against us. Who's in a courtroom testifying against us, guys? Satan. Satan is in there. He's in the courtroom testifying against us. Christ, when you have accepted his sacrifice, Christ is testifying for you. He is at the right hand of God saying, I died for her. My blood covers her sin. When I keep wanting to confess those sins, God is like, what sins? One of the most beautiful pictures is in Colossians um, when it talks about our debt being nailed on Christ. Back in that day, the debt was written on the door and they uh, hang it up on the door frame. So everybody knew your debt. And until you paid your debt, that was there for everybody to see. When you paid your debt, they would erase it. So the slate was clean. Guys, when we've sinned, when we've accepted Christ as our Savior, that debt has been washed away. We have no more debt. We may keep coming back and telling God about sins. And he's like, what sin? What sin are you talking about? I see Christ's righteousness. I see Christ's righteousness in you. That's what I see. Satan points to our sin. Christ, God, points to the cross. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to struggle with bitterness and guilt and shame. Lord, thank you that if we are your child, you've forgiven us. We're cleansed. We're cleaned, Lord, by Christ's blood, by his righteousness. Lord, I just thank you for those truths. I thank you, Lord, that even in this book of Ruth, we see pictures, God, that point us back to our hearts. Lord, Naomi is, is a sad woman. It's sad to see what's happened to her. It's sad to see how her faith has been battered. And yet, Lord, we know the end of the book. We know how gracious you're going to be to her, how beautiful your provision is going to be for her, and how even in the middle of her bitterness, God, you are patient and you care for her. God, thank you for your word. Be with the ladies now as they just spend time around the table, just encouraging each other in the lesson and the word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.